condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hello, welcome back to Behind the Headlines. It is August 6th, 2017. I'm your host for today, Harrison Cayley. In the studios with me today, we've got Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. Joe Quinn. Hi there. And Neil Bradley. Hi. Hello. As usual, our regular hosts. So today, we are going to be talking about a number of stories over the past week or so, developing stories Stuff that we've probably already talked about, but uh, new developments. So, for example, with the whole Russiagate scandal, as we say in the description, it's entered uh, phase um, 3,691 by now, probably. Maybe 92, Mm -hmm. maybe 93. Um, It's the never-ending story of Washington politics that uh, it seems to go very far without any legs, which is quite a feat. And maybe we'll get into some news about Venezuela and some just kind of random stories that caught our eye over the last week. But to start out with, maybe we'll talk about the latest in the in the Russiagate scandal. So if you haven't heard, uh, Bob Mueller is uh, special counsel kind of investigating everything. And there have been several stories that have come out in the past week or so about potential kind of developments in this case. Now, you know, for me reading these stories, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to, to get an idea of what's actually going on because as usual, for the most part, the, all the kind of real, well, all the kind of news about it is from, you know, insiders and anonymous sources and, you know, White House aides and advisors. And it's hard to kind of get any on the record statement from a, a named official involved. But the, the buzz going around is that Mueller had uh, basically impaneled some grand juries and, to issue subpoenas with hints that Trump was under investigation. And um, so th- those were kind of the initial stories. And then some more stories came out from more kind of anonymous sources that painted a somewhat different picture. They said, yeah, uh, there have been some grand juries, but Trump isn't investi- under investigation and um, you know, reading some analysis of these kinds of procedures, apparently um, grand juries aren't very uncommon for this kind of thing. And it's basically a, just a kind of um, easier way to issue subpoenas um, without going through the courts, essentially. And, uh, and um, you know, the, and, and that way the, the person under subpoena basically goes to court and they get to argue their case. It's basically just a way of, okay, here's, we get a grand jury, we issue the subpoena and that's it, kind of, you know shortens the process apparently i don't i don't really know i I don't i don't know a lot about the you know the intricacies of the the justice system but apparently that's what's going on so some somewhat contradictory reports you know as i just said um what's the significance of these grand juries who knows um who's being subpoenaed you know not quite sure apparently they're saying there may be some some white house officials and aides um but what seems to be the case um is that they're the, the investigation right now from the latest news is focusing on Flynn, which is kind of what it started out with. So back to the beginning. 
back to the beginning. And that's interesting for a couple of reasons because, um, first of all, if you've just been if you've been reading all the stories, just like everything in the Russiagate, um, you know, in all these different stories that have come out over the past months. It sounds like you know the, a big catastrophe. The you know the Trump administration is about to fall apart, and everyone's going to get arrested, kind of thing. Um, that's the kind of uh, emotion around the latest stories. But when you look at this news about Flynn, what it seems to me, at least, and you know a couple uh, people that I've been reading online, is that really it's like um, okay, well that's kind of what they expected to find, and it's kind of what you'd expect them to find. And it isn't very scandalous and it's not very big news. So to get into why I think that, it's like, okay, you take anyone, um, probably anyone in Washington, anyone involved in politics. If you put the spotlight on them, you're going to find something that they've done that's illegal. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you take any any random person from Capitol Hill and you investigate them hard enough, you're going to find a crime of some sort. So if you're going to, if they're going to be investigating guys like Flynn and Manafort, they're probably going to find something. Um, you know, something to deal with money, you know, they got got paid a little bit too much through a middleman for some reason and and when you actually look at it, okay, yeah, that's technically illegal, that's prosecutable. So I wouldn't be surprised if they actually find something on Flynn. And, you know, from the so from the kind of rumor mongering that's been going around, it sounds like possibly they did find some stuff on Flynn. But the what that kind of screams to me, uh, you know, the significance of that is that that's all that they found. I mean, they haven't, there hasn't been any news about them finding any kind of, you know, Rus- Russian collusion, um, any kind of, you know, stuff like that. That they haven't found anything, you know, about Trump and they're, they're, and even the explicit statement from one of these other, you know, anonymous officials that seems to be, that seems to have come from, you know, directly within the Mueller probe. Um, saying that Trump isn't an, under investigation, so basically, it, it it kind of what what you have right now seems to suggest that they haven't really found anything so far, and that Mueller is you know looking at everything and going over all this evidence, and yet despite that, they've found you know maybe some minor minor financial crimes that Flynn and Manafort have committed with you know that don't really have anything to do with the uh, the Trump campaign or um, you know, uh, any kind of Trump campaign collusion with the Russians. So at least that's what it appears to me. Did you guys have any thoughts on what this all looks like so far? Well, the um, you mentioned uh, the grand jury uh, will be kind of headed to uh, to be part of this investigation. Uh, one of the one of the things that uh, a commentator mentioned about grand juries in particular is that. Um, they they tend to uh, they tend to kind of um, lean on or or bias towards uh, prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, someone put out the statistic about the two thousand or so uh, grand juries that were convened by a certain uh, group, and and quite often uh, whatever's being prosecuted almost always gets prosecuted. Mm-hmm. So it it seems as though this is one of the mechanisms by which, you know, they're going to find something uh, and amplify it and and make it into this, uh, in, into this, they're going to give it legs, as you said, in, in a way that it, it wouldn't ordinarily have legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other way that they're kind of imposing this whole uh, investigation and kind of uh, 
not creating any out or, or um, they're kind of closing in on Trump uh, was kind of exemplified by uh, Lindsey Graham's statement recently. Uh, Lindsey Graham, as we know, is the uh, the the other warmongering twin of uh, John McCain. Uh, he's part of the, this judiciary panel, and he said that um, he was working on a bill that would prevent the firing mm -hmm. of a special counsel, meaning Robert Mueller, without judicial review. So Graham said that uh, a firing of Mueller would precipitate a firestorm that would be unprecedented in proportions. So basically what they're saying is we're going through with this. And, you know, if you even try to uh, resist or, uh, or come up with any reasons to suggest why Mueller uh, is biased, and of course he is super biased, um, he's, he's got strong links to Comey, he's got strong links to uh, the Clintons and Clinton supporters, mm -hmm. uh, so, so it is very politically motivated. But Graham's yeah. kind of holding this thread over the Trump administration and saying, if you if you even try and think about going against Mueller in some way, we're going to create a firestorm and you're going to mm. regret it. And his, and his southern gentleman voice. Um, <laughs> southern bell. <laughs> southern bell voice, which makes it so, <laughs> so really effective and imposing. Anyway, um, I'm not sure it's... Uh, I'm not sure I, I agree with the idea that it, that they're going to, that they're convening this grand jury to necessarily to find anything because I think even those people know that there is nothing. Um, although that doesn't mean they can't make stuff up. But I don't think it's to actually find something necessarily to impeach Trump. I think they're still in, in the st at the stage of having uh, th threatening Trump, you know, in the same way you were saying, Alan, that... Um, that was a threat uh, by, um, what do you call him? Lindsay, Lindsay Graham. Graham yeah. uh, that don't even think about, to Trump, you know, don't even think about trying to get rid of uh, Mueller as the as kind of chief investigator because he's our man and he's going to do our job. But the whole grand jury thing is very useful because it can be stretched out, stretched out for as long as they wanted to. And as far as they're concerned, it's, and when I say they, I mean, Congress, <clears throat> the War Party, the Washington, the Washington elite, the intel agencies slash the deep state, whatever those people who are basically, um, you know, believe themselves to have been running the country and that were not really uh, ready for or interested in a president getting elected against all expectations, uh, who would even you know think that he could actually use the power allegedly invested in the office of the president to actually do stuff of his own accord or stuff that wasn't, first of all, uh, kind of rubber stamped by Congress and the establishment figures in, in, in American politics. Um, so the, the, that's that, that, that's the threat, effectively, of from Trump to them is that we have someone who would basically go his own way, and and we've seen that, and we've talked about that pre previously, how Trump has been attempting uh, to go his own way, and whether or not you agree with that is kind of irrelevant. Uh, it's simply that it's not the same direction, let's say, as Congress and the deep state want him to go. So having this grand jury 
is just the next. I mean, they started out with a dodgy Russian dossier and then the, the FBI Russian investigation, um, all trumped up, all made up, but designed to put pressure on Trump to keep him distracted and, you know, hold this threat of impeachment over his head to get him in line and to get him to do the bidding of his masters effectively, which is, you know, the role of any president in the US and has been for quite a long time to do the bidding of the people, the career diplomats or the career politicians. Uh, they're the ones who run the country, not the president, who comes in every four years or eight years. It's kind of ridiculous as far as I'm concerned to think that uh, some guy would get elected and then and, and upend the, the kind of apple cart or, or change course. It's just silly. You're not, not having any of that. It's the people like Lindsey Graham have been around for decades and John McCain and all those people. And then the unelected people as well have been around for decades. They're the ones who run the country and I suppose rightfully see themselves as running the country. So they're holding this threat over Trump. They don't like the fact that he's a bit of a wild card, a bit of a maverick trying to do things on his own. So they start with the Russian investigation and the FBI investigation, blah, blah. And it's just more of the same, basically. And this is a way that this this investigation, this grand jury doesn't need to find anything. It can simply be investigating all the time. And the message of Trump is, listen, at any point, we could take this to the point where you would be impeached. And I'm pretty sure that he was told about this grand jury, uh, convening of the grand jury into Russia or whatever bogeyman it is, um, he was told about that before uh, it became, you know, public knowledge. It was reported in the media, uh, and he was told about it uh, as part of the, or at the same time as the, he was told or was made aware of the sanctions against Russia, the new sanctions against Russia, and it was presented to him as, you know, this is why you're going to, this is why you're going to sign that bill, because we're going to have a grand jury investigation into you. And this isn't just an FBI investigation. Uh, you're not going to be able to fire uh, him like you fired. Like you're not going to make this go away like you did with uh, with Comey uh, by, by firing him. So, uh, And this could easily lead to your impeachment. That's a threat anyway, whether or not that's true, but that's what they're telling him. And they hope to secure his begrudging allegiance by effectively blackmail. And that's, so my point is, I don't think it's necessarily meant to find anything, but in theory it could. But I don't think it, they, they figure that it won't be necessary for this jury to actually find anything. Just keep it running. Keep it running for a year, for as long as it takes. Maybe three years until Trump's gone, they think. Uh, so that we can hold that over his head all the time. That do what we tell you or you'll be impeached. Mm-hmm. Well, but I think that, um, um, well, one one thing is that we we don't, have all the facts and um like we don't even know what the what for sure what the purpose of this grand jury is like there were i mentioned the kind of two streams of articles one suggesting that this was a grand jury like you said that could go on for for ages and investigate this this uh, russia thing and um you know be used to hold over trump's head on the other hand what some of the other leaks have said is that it's strictly for the purpose of issuing subpoenas, which is a common practice, and that, that they've been doing so for like the past two or three months, I think since right. May. So, um, right, the form- so <clears throat> they've formalized it and made it, made it known to the public. Yeah. But if you make it known to everybody, but you don't make it known exactly what the purpose is, and there's still some secrecy about the events involved, then you can massage that fact any way you want in order to right. create an impression that could, you know, put Trump on the defensive. So if right. you make him think that there's that there's this huge investigation and that it's never going to end, you, they, mm-hmm. you know, the, the purpose of that, assuming that the, it's generally or it's for the most part um, like benign, um, then 
it's it's almost like a, a provocation in order to get a response from Trump that will then be bad publi- bad publicity for him and make himself you know dig dig his hole even deeper. So, but yeah. if we but if you like like uh, let's just assume that um, just for the sake of argument that Mueller is doing things completely by the book and that um, you know that he that he's not um, you know making stuff up or um, let's just assume that he's he's doing his job. Then what would you expect? Yeah. Well, just yeah, just for, just for the sake of argument. So let's assume he's doing his job. What you know? What would he have to do? He'd have to investigate. You know, every every little claim that's been made, every little accusation. So he'd have to interview all these people, get subpoenas for all these people, um, and you know, so every, everything that you've seen in the news, he'd have to investigate. And you know, if we're pretty sure that there's nothing there, then he'll you know he and his team will do all these investigations find that there's nothing there, but they'll have a basically a complete paper trail that they've, you know, done their due diligence. As mm-hmm. they're doing so, you know, um, the nature of this thing is going to be secret to a degree. They're not going to be telling everyone exactly what they're doing or, or the conclusions that they're coming to. And that creates a kind of, um, like, news vacuum, essentially. They can then be filled in by mm-hmm. by whoever, you know, wants to do the filling in for whatever purposes. And you, we'd, we'd essentially see the same news that we'd see if Mueller was totally corrupt and this was a total, you know, uh, um, what, what's the word? Witch hunt. Witch hunt, yeah. So we'd be seeing the same thing either way. Um, but yeah. we don't, you know, but we don't know for sure what's really going on. So, you know. Well, w- I think mm-hmm. we can fairly safely assume, we're going to assume things, that this is uh, designed to put pressure on Trump, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, everything that's come, it follows on from the last six months of this, these these enemies of Trump within the establishment uh, who are using Russia to 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 stir the pot and to defame him effectively and to I mean it's got two agendas. One is to stop Trump uh, from doing what he wants to do, which is kind of like we were saying last week. Uh, he wants to do, he wants to do business in a certain sense, and that includes friendly relations with uh, with other countries, including Russia, um, and. The other one is to to increase. I mean, it's a, it's a two for one kind of thing because it also uh, continues the demonization of Russia. Uh, because once you, if you accuse Trump of having, you know, it's it's just a continuation of the whole thing from the very beginning, from the dodgy dossier of him having illicit ties with Russia. That all are based on nothing. There's nothing there. It's a big nothing burger, as CNN admitted themselves. But apparently, that doesn't make any any difference. You know, the whole world was, in theory, treated to that information that CNN. That, that it was leading the charge against Trump on this kind of like collusion with Russia hacked our democracy, that there's nothing there, according to people who are producing the news for CNN. They say there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. But apparently they're going to run with it anyway, and now they're going to convene a grand jury. Okay, they're not saying exactly what it's for, but if you're Trump, what, are you gonna, what do you think it's for? Mm-hmm. What do you suspect it's for? And maybe that's the point, for him to suspect that, and he'd be very right in suspecting that these people are... are out to get him in some way, and it creates a sense of, of paranoia in him and being kind of very nervous and on tenterhooks kind of thing because you don't know what these assholes are going to come up with or what they could come up with. And in theory, I mean, all the all the Congress all Congress has to do in theory is is uh, prepare articles of impeachment against the president, mm-hmm. and if they get enough support for it, they impeach him. Now, in current day America, I wouldn't be surprised if they simply said. We're going to impeach Trump for anti-American activities, collusion with Russia, 
uh, and it doesn't matter if everybody turns around and says, but, but where's your evidence? Shut up. There is no evidence. We're doing it anyway. Oh, not, there's no evidence, but you know, there's evidence. Shut up. We're doing it. He's impeached. He's gone. But in theory, <clears throat> that's what they would, um, they would be willing to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what Trump fears. Is that these people are crazy enough and mad enough? Because he, I mean, he, I think he's fairly aware of the fact that he, at this point, anyway, I would hope so, that the fact that when he became president, he's not the president, he's not the commander in chief. Uh, the powers invested in the office of the White House are to be used, um, in in the context of, or only to be used in the context of, or in line with what the deep state says should be done. Not what the president decides. The president does not is not unlike George Bush, the decider in chief, in the sense that he can decide unilaterally or independently what he should do, decide policy for particularly foreign policy, uh, particularly for vis a vis Russia and Europe, and you know. So he's found that out, and but he's stubborn enough to keep trying and keep going and keep you know firing tweets back at people and blaming in Congress and outing Congress and outing people calling all these people kind of bad names and, and appealing to the American people. And to them, that's a threat. I mean, to them, it's a threat that this man has, this, has a, is a, is a populist leader mm-hmm. and that you've seen, you, you saw what he did uh, in response to um, the sanctions where he was forced to sign the, 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 the bill for new sanctions. He turned around and basically went public and said, uh, really un- unconstitutional, uh, it's not a good deal and blame Congress. So that's what he does. He turns around, and that's very unusual. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, maybe we're we're already too used to it, but it's actually remarkable that you would have that situation in the U.S. If you look back over the past, you know, as many as you want, presidents going back, it never happened. We had a president appealing to the public for support against the Washington establishment. Mm-hmm. Before now, they're all one and the same. There was no no difference, right? President was just the spokesperson for the Washington establishment, but now. It's not. It hasn't been that way, and it's it's pretty pretty crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing he can do at the moment. Um, accentuate the differences after the healthcare attempt. The attempt to pass a healthcare act failed because John McCain cast a deciding vote in Senate. Um, he went basically did like a, a campaign rally style event in Ohio where traditionally Democrat voters had voted for him in droves. Overflow crowd of 20,000 people, and he basically gave a campaign speech. And the crowd were baying for, you know, the same message as before, lock her up and drain the swamp. And he said, yeah, I know. It's Congress. I'm ready, pen in hand. They're blocking me. Then we get the Russia sanctions passed almost unanimously, and he's just this week gone on a campaign-style rally to Virginia. Same thing. Overflow crowd, being for blood in West Virginia, actually. Um, it was an interesting event, actually, because the governor showed up and Trump stopped halfway through his speech to let him come on. He wants to say a few words. And the governor, who was elected as a Democrat governor of West Virginia, mm-hmm. announced in the middle of the speech, I can no longer go on as a Democrat. I'm now... Tomorrow, I'm going to register as a Republican. And, of course, it just lifted the roof. Um, so that's twice now he's done that. It blocked in Congress, goes to the people. They're being for blood. Blocked in Congress, goes to the people. They're being for blood. Given that he, they've got him by the cojones and he can't actually do anything. By the way, there was another act just now 
Congress has gone into recess for all this, and they did another first unanimously. Again, and unanimously, that, that's a really bad idea. They shouldn't do that. Just make sure you've got a majority. But they've shown that all of Congress together blocked Trump from appointing anyone called recess appointments. Normally, it's just standard. When the new president comes in and people go away for August in his first year, he just carries on making appointments. Because by then, they're usually just minor appointments mm. to fill in government jobs. Right. But they blocked him from making a right, single but that, one. But that says it all. They don't trust this guy at all. I mean, you're talking about all of Congress not trusting the president. I mean, it's, there's a lid being kept on it in terms of uh, any of the Western media talking about this in real terms and, and really what's going on. You know, they're just content to bash Trump and that kind of thing. But nobody's actually saying explicitly uh, how unusual and bizarre this is where you have basically the president and Congress completely at odds and fighting with each other, you know, in this in, in an ongoing battle that's been last that's lasted for the past six months and it's going and apparently is going to continue, you know. And they're they're so triumphalist about it. There's a fundamental flaw in the US Constitution. It was of course originally designed and always touted as being a check on the power of a president becoming a tyrant and a dictator mm-hmm. by ensuring three equal separate powers, judiciary, Congress, and the executive. But the flaw is that, well, what about the situation where the nobility becomes corrupt? Mm. Because historically that happens. And very often a czar or a king or some other kind of monarch or absolute leader has been the one who saved the people from the corrupt nobility. We're in that situation now, and it's checked by this legal problem. Right. That was never thought through at the beginning. Right. But you notice that, that historically that um, that way of the, the, the identification of a single leader <clears throat> as the tyrant that has to be overthrown has been used <clears throat> by <clears throat> by other countries to um, particularly America and Western countries to affect kind of regime change. They're doing still today and have been doing it in, in, in Syria most recently. Um but yeah, that's that's not that's not really. I mean, certainly in modern history, that's not the the problem. It's 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 obviously a ruse. It's a it's propaganda. It's lies to to achieve a kind of a regime change operation when the real uh, corrupt power is spread out like a kind of virus. So there's no one person. It's a network. Yeah, or a virus, like okay. an infection, more like an infection than a network. No. <laughs> Just using pejorative terms rather than positive yeah. ones. Yeah. Um, you know, and no one can be, no one person can be identified uh, as he's the guy, except in the context where it's basically a lie, and that person is being held up. And we've seen so many examples of that uh, around the world, but in America, uh, I mean, in theory, in America today, it's it's kind of really strangely reversed. In theory, in America today. Uh, if you, if some country, other country in the world wanted to, uh, was engaged in kind of regime change operations around the world, they could, America would be ripe for it today, mm-hmm. right? You could be ripe for a revolution in America today because you could identify Trump, the evil guy, the evil tyrant who's trying to take absolute control and he needs to be stopped in the name of democracy and you could have foreign troops sweep in and, you know, you could, or you could, uh, foment a revolution, arm the population and they could storm the Capitol Hill and take Trump out and kill him like Gaddafi or something like that, right? And then you could have a wonderful, post-revolution disaster or something that happens in most countries. Uh, but in America, that's not going to happen, obviously, because bizarrely, that 
that kind of scenario is reversed where Trump is actually the better option for the country and it's the corrupt kind of um the corrupt like you said network of of, of people who are, who are the ones who should be overthrown but it's not possible to overthrow them but at the same time you do have this large section of the American population who have been encouraged to be to 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 kind of um to, to be screaming about Trump and you know for lot before he even became president that he's not my president and get him out he's a tyrant and stuff you know so it's very it's kind of like a bizarre twisted version of the of, of what happens in other countries or what is you know mm. in terms of regime change you know uh, but that doesn't mean that a kind of a revolution of sorts could uh, uh, might not happen mm-hmm. uh, in the US you know um, some kind of an uprising and if it was going to happen obviously it's not going to come from the lefties right because uh, you don't need to have a an anti-Trump uh, you know the, the anti-Trump uh, population in the US the left let's say you don't need them to come in and overthrow Trump because Congress is doing a pretty good job of uh, uh, rendering him kind of more or less impotent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, if the, the, I think the most plausible revolutionary scenario I see is if Trump is impeached and right. then and then his base of support launches right. a revolution. They would be the ones who, who would uh, would be most likely to to, to to get out on the streets, yeah. Mm-hmm. If he's impeached, or like you say, if something, if he's in, or even if he's not impeached, if if it gets to the point where he's been completely kind of neutered, can do nothing, and he turns around and yeah, calls for calls for a revolution or something, you know, yeah, um, could happen. But um, yeah, it's really it's a really bizarre situation. It's very chaotic and very. Kind of unsettling, you know. It's kind of, it's almost like the kind of thing we we might have wished for in the U.S. to shake things up, you know, years ago, you know, that someone would come in and you know drain the swamp, kind of thing, or you know, take take power back and actually represent the people in America against the interests of the of the the kleptocracy or the oligarchs, whatever the Washington establishment. Um, but it's hasn't really turned out. Very well. Well, I mean, it's a, the problem is that it's a, it has happened to the extent that it could happen in America. Legally. Yeah. As good as it gets, type yeah. of thing, mm-hmm. in terms of Trump coming in. Um, but it just makes for a very, very confusing. And well, the whole world is very upset about it, you know? I mean, because as much as we reeled against in the past, this idea of American exceptionalism and America as the world's policeman, it seems that that really was, you know, almost subconsciously for a lot of people, in the world, uh, they did see America in that way as a force, Comforting. Of, a force of stability. Yeah, and uh, and now that it's all gone a bit pear shaped over there, and there's a lot of uh, infighting and stuff going on, the whole world's kind of are like uh, kind of lost children, you know, going, "What's going on? Why are mommy and daddy fighting?" You know, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. You know, and <laughs> Daddy, um, daddy's drinking too much, and he's getting <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. You know? mommy. <laughs> yeah, so it's not. We should be careful what we wish for, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well. Uh, as I've been following the news recently, I, I was wondering if, you know, in addition to the, the, the tweeting that Trump's been doing and these uh, these rallies that he's been holding to uh, garner more support, if at some point he's just going to go on national TV, I mean, he has this in- incredible venue where he can just um, he can just get on TV and, and talk to the American people for an hour if he wanted to. 
and just say, hey, look, you know, they're, they're after me. Uh, basically reiterating everything he's been saying in his speeches and in his tweets and, and saying this is a witch hunt and even maybe pointing some fingers, uh, you know, and that's separate from whether or not that would be such a, such a speech would be counterproductive or not. But, um, you know, I, I can't think of anything else he might do as an appeal to, uh, the awareness and the, uh, the, the will of, of the people who support him and maybe others who might come to his side, except to, to go out and really make the message uh, even stronger. But, um, you know, like we were saying, it's the, the pressure that's being put to bear on him uh, might make him hesitant to go that full, uh, that full mile and, and lay it all out there and, and, and say, look, you know, this is uh this is really ridiculous and I'm not being allowed to do what I was um, elected to do. So uh, I, at this point, I can't, I can't think of anything else he, he might do to counteract all of, all of the pressure that's been put down on him. Do any of you think he can succeed? Make America great again, get reelected. Reign in the wars, reinvest a trillion. Do any of you think he can basically succeed? Well, I think he could get reelected. That's one thing. Um, as for anything else, uh, I don't know. Because if, if he can't, no one else can. I mean, he is one mm -hmm. st stubborn person. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he's going to get stuff done. I don't know if it's necessarily going to be, you know, ideal, but um, like, for example, with the with the Russia thing, you know, I don't think he's ever going to be able to scale back sanctions or anything like that, or develop a, you know, a, a you know, a super good relationship with Russia. But um, like Lavrov just met with uh, Tillerson, I think yesterday, and you know, after this, after afterwards, Lavrov basically said uh oh, i didn't i didn't really read it too closely but he said something like uh, you know we're happy with uh with the, the you know the americans um you know their their renewed interest in collaborating on certain areas of you know interest or something like that basically like in syria for example so i think like for ex for situations like in syria for example we'll see minor good things but we won't ever you know i don't think he'll he'll succeed in totally changing the you know, the, the anti-Russian, um, um, you know, movement the, the, that we see. I don't think that's going to change. I don't think he's going to be able to, um, uh, well, what else? Make America you know? great again. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a goal. <laughs> it's a goal that you, and, and, and then a path that you travel on to get to that goal. Maybe you never actually reach the goal, but, uh, you know, it's a good talking Let's point. Let's put it getting. this way. <laughs> The U.S. is headed for a cliff. Mm. Can he stop it from going over the cliff? Mm. I don't know. For me, it's a clear no, but... Uh, what yeah. cliff's it going over? A total collapse. Collapse of the petrodollar. Um, mm. Probably retaliations against this military, forcing a collapse of chain of command and breakaway units. Um... Civil wars of some extent what? or another, um, major crisis uh, impacting 
availability of resources, I mean, full, full-fledged societal collapse. It's a bit apocalyptic. Yeah. You're just hoping there for that. <laughs> no, that's that's where I thought for 10 years it's going. Oh. And then Trump came in, oh, well, he might be able to steer this thing here a second. And it might not be such a hard landing. Oh. And now I'm like back to hard landing. Well, how do you envision the collapse of Petrodollar? Yeah, any number of things. Saudi Arabia regime change. Britain regime change. Um, Saudi Arabia regime change? Yeah. By who? Well, not necessarily by anyone. Internal, internal problems. You got it. Well, I think it would have to be. It have to be external, you know. And America would have to go. Yankee would have to go home first, you know, before they allow that to happen, you know. I don't know. I think if that's going to happen, then it has to be some other factor. I don't see. I don't see America. America's too too widely spread around the world, and you know, it have to be an economic issues would have to precipitate all of that. All of that could happen. But it would have to be something to do with the economy where basically America could no longer maintain empire because of economic issues. But even that, an economic collapse could be precipitated by something else, you know. Um, and maybe this whole Trump business is, is something that, you know, we have a crisis of confidence. I mean, a lot of these things kind of tend to happen the same way that uh, markets are said to be ruled by sentiment and stuff, you know. Uh, like we already we mentioned our, earlier in the show about the idea of uh, the world losing confidence or, or feeling a bit... Uh, Anxious or nervous about the the kind of vacuum of of, of global leadership uh, caused by this, this this chaos in America, you know, there's just there's a palpable sense that people are concerned about it, you know, um, and you know, so there's those kind of non-linear, kind of more abstract things that that could happen, but and who knows what the precipitating? I mean, the precipitating it could be a small thing that's that snowballs or whatever, you know, but it seems that there's good the conditions right now are quite good. Um, going forward for some kind of a constitutional crisis and maybe even like an impeachment of Trump or something like that could could go very, very wrong, you know, horribly wrong for for people. And it wouldn't necessarily mean like a civil war in America or anything like that, but you could have some civil unrest, some uprising by, um, you know, street protests, large street protests by Trump supporters in the U.S. that could just be a kind of a, uh, a kind of, the could light the, like the touch paper, you know, or, or um, and and start the ball rolling. So it's very hard to predict exactly how those things, but you could end up with a, a domino effect of things. But what would precipitate? You know, I think right now it's very chaotic in in U.S. politics, and um, if the crazies in Washington continue being as crazy as they are, I think they may be the the, the architects of their own downfall. You know, when they'll be left mm-hmm. afterwards to scratch their heads and wonder. Where did it all go wrong? You know, um, but such is the, that's the fate of those kind of people. You know, um, people consumed with their own righteousness and uh, and lust for power and greed and stuff. You know, I mean, they just they end up doing stuff that that is the, that makes them the architect of their own of their own destruction. You know, but yeah, so predicting it is very difficult to, to, in terms of what would happen. You know, it could be any number of things. You know. It, it really is a testament to the bubble that, that uh, these people in uh, Congress are in still that they haven't acknowledged that uh, Trump won the election for a reason, that it's, it wasn't some fluke or some accident that uh, he, he was able to beat, you know, their gal, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, it, it doesn't matter to them. They're, 
they're in their own world. Uh, they're invested in getting more homes and and uh, and uh, accruing more power and control to themselves. And um, there seems to be very little that that can uh, encroach on this uh, this this view that they have of things and this virus that you mentioned. Um, that makes it so much easier to blame other countries for uh, like Russia for, for the internal problems of uh, the U S yeah. the thing that has to be remembered in, in all of this is that there's no good reason why anybody in Washington. Um, I mean, a good reason as in a rational, logical reason why anybody in the Washington elite should be so kind of anti-Trump and feel that they need to take these measures to contain him and restrain him. And, and create this rift between the president and, and, and the rest of them, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no good reason, right, except the fact that these people who are the, you know, the real, the real controllers or rulers of America are, in, have, are now and have been for quite a long time gripped by this idea of American exceptionalism. And I think I said this last week where it's basically their attitude is America first on top always i.e. that does not allow for any kind of any deals or any uh, business or whatever that America might do with another country that would allow a country who they see as a potential threat to their position as top of the heap uh, to be to be to be threatened or to be compromised um, so that's their attitude it's like instead of let's do business and we'll all get something out of it uh, sure, Russia's on the rise, China's on the rise. Uh, surely if we establish good relations with those countries and see that as an inevitability and the emergence of a, a unipolar world, well, let's do what we can right now in advance of their further rise to strike as many good deals as possible in America's interest so that we benefit as much. So it's, a, it's, a, it's like the acceptance of the idea that the world is changing and America has to change with it. They, these people in the in Washington, in the, in the establishment, the deep state, or whatever, reject that idea completely and absolutely. America has been, as far as they're concerned, America always was on top in terms of the most important era of of of, of, of you know of the world essentially, which is you know the modern era, the past hundred years, let's say. America has been on top. It has it has climbed to the top in a short period of time. It has reached the top. It's been there for several decades or more, maybe since the Second World War, let's say, seventy years. And it's not done yet. Far from done. We expect to go from strength to strength. And what they mean by strength to strength is to continue to dominate the rest of the world. And that, by definition, means keep any potential competitors to that top position down. So it's a whole worldview and a frame, a kind of ideology these people have where it's, we there's a pyramid and we have to be at the top. Mm. The idea of it being... Uh, kind of sharing power with other countries, whatever, is like these people are completely paranoid. They don't trust anybody. They're, they're, they're kind of like nasty, evil, manipulative, blackmailing kind of people themselves. They project that onto everybody else. They, they cannot, they're, they're constitutionally unable to, to tr- trust anybody else, trust any other nation that no matter what they say, they don't trust Putin. They don't, when Putin says, I want to work with our, our American partners, they're like, yeah, he's just bullshit. And he's just, he's, he's seeking our downfall, that little dirty, yeah. baldy, Russian judo bear writer. When China says, 
we make deal, we do win-win. Yes, they go okay. What's the, what's the game? What's the here? catch? What's Come the catch? On. There's a catch in here. You mean you win and we lose? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we studied game theory, all right. Right. Those mm-hmm. those that's that, and you can't break those people out of that 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 worldview, and it means that they will that that they will take the approach of those people are a threat, and our first order of business always is to make sure they are kept down. So we have to pursue an aggressive policy against Russia and China at every single turn. So when Trump comes in and starts saying, "Let's do business with Russia and China. Let's cut some good deals. Let's, you know, let let's let's you know, the, let's play the game basically. Let's let's uh, let's do business." They're like, "You're you're nuts. You're crazy." No, that's not the approach you take to those people. You screw them over at every opportunity. You don't do business deals with them. The only business deals you do with them is ones that are massively in our favor and against them. That ultimately, so we have to get them to accept really shitty deals, basically. And if they won't accept them, we'll force it on them. How do we do that? We'll sanctions. <clears throat> that's the policy they're pursuing. And how do you change someone with that kind of a worldview? It's part of their DNA. You can't change those people. And they are going to usher in the destruction of America in one way or another by pursuing this policy because they, the only little piece of reality that they see, which is is the, is the rise of Russia and China. But they believe that they can stop it. And the reality is that they cannot the world order is changing and they either go with it or they go down. But as far as they're concerned, no, we're not changing anything. We are staying on top and those two are staying down and everybody else who threatens us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's not enough that we win, you must lose. Right. And th- this this game theory idea, uh, as you said, Joe, it, it is, it, it's in the very DNA of the think tanks and the uh, military-industrial complex organizations that have thought about this, that have had you know brilliant but pathological people employed to uh, to to um, to describe this idea and make it part of the the thinking of 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 Washington at its deepest mm-hmm. level, and what we're seeing now after. 50 or 60 or 70 years of, uh, of, of the concentration of, of power of these intelligence agencies is the, the, the kind of full-on manifestation of this idea, this sickness, uh, that, um, that is, it's ubiquitous. It's, it's, it's not even, uh, you know, it, it's, it's part of the everyday thinking. It's so natural to them that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that no one can take a step back and say, wait a second. Uh, there, there, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, it, it's it's become a very natural part of of how things are done. Mm-hmm. So, um, in that sense, they, yeah, we're, we're taking they, ourselves over the cliff. They believe they can read Russia's genetics, right? What was the clapper said? Mm-hmm. Subversion is in is in the DNA of the Russians, right? Well, in their DNA, they have. An inability, inability, not able. It's not that they they listen to you and go, okay, no, we don't like it. They can't conceive what it means to have a world without hegemony, because they're like, no, that that's, that doesn't exist. But actually, if they studied history, they would see that it has. There have been long spells where there's been no single dominant center. Right. But they they may they may be aware of history, but they reject history because as irrelevant. Because they are now, we are all now in a new era. You know, historical precedents or stuff that went on in the past are completely irrelevant to this new 
uh, American century. You know, it's never been seen before. They, they, they kind of basically, you know, uh, you know, talk themselves up in their own heads and to each other uh, about how wonderful and amazing and exceptional America is. That's to the extent that all of the all of the rules of the past do not apply to America. That's that's the idea. That's the essence of an exceptional nation. The world has never seen a nation like America before. So what use is history? As far as they're concerned, that's what, that's what they believe. Of course, they don't realize that the world has seen all of this before. And uh, they're no different. So it's a complete lack of humility, obviously. That's a real problem. Uh, the idea that uh, you're simply a part of, you're simply uh, playing a part in history and history has its own forces. And history goes around uh, eff- effectively in cycles. And that you're no more powerful than anybody else who thought. I'm sure there are people who came before yeah. you who thought who thought the same thing, and they fell just like everybody else. But the, I mean, you're talking about extreme narcissism and just you yeah, know. it's very unique. It is exceptional. It is exceptional in a way. In it's, that it's way, exceptionally non-human. It's it's something that most people they can't conceive the way they think and vice versa. Um, it's so alien to everyone else. It's like. That's why that's why we end up with these with these descriptions of them, oh, the Washington crazies or Nutcase McCain and so on. But actually, there's an incredible consistency to to how they operate, think, and behave. Um, it does form its own internal logic, but when it's actually subjected to logic, it falls apart in the face of it. But um, yeah, and and that's the other part of it. You know what you just said, Neil. I mean. Uh, it is very alien. It is very foreign from how uh, most people think. Um, you know, the, the fact that the U.S. has has been the leading uh, force for regime change in the world uh, for the past seventy years um, or so or more, um, while maintaining this veneer of uh, freedom and democracy among so many. You know, it, it, it's, it's got to be mind-boggling for people to um, approach the idea that not only is the United States not what they think it is, but, but in many ways is the very opposite of what they think it is. And that's the extent to which uh, we've been lied to and people have swallowed the lie. And, um, but I think a lot of people are waking up to that fact right now as well. I'm, I'm not sure it's that strange, though, that the, the kind of way we're describing, and I think it's fairly accurate, the, the, the psychology, the psychological profile of the Washington, Washington elite. I'm not sure it's that strange or unusual. It, it, it seems to me it's fairly common. I mean, it's it's almost like a, it's a stereotype in a certain sense of, of kind of a type of human psychology you can see um, portrayed in movies. I mean, you probably, people have, can see it in, in a, a certain version of it or you know, a microcosm of it in an individual they've known and it's been portrayed on TV and it's this idea that someone who is holding power cannot let go of power because they convince themselves that if I don't keep a check on everything, if I don't control everything, then it'll all fall apart and everybody will suffer. So it's not that these people are saying, hmm, you know, um, we're holding power over everyone and we're enjoying it. ha. It's more like they have a narrative which they tell themselves that they're doing the right thing. They're doing what's good. Um, of course, that narrative, as, as they progress, becomes more and more kind of threadbare and more and more 
you know, untenable and unrealistic, but they stick with it anyway. And the bottom line is they all get, get in a room together and say, well, you know, uh, well, maybe we should go with, you know, maybe we should go with a, a, a multipolar world and, you know, let down our defenses a bit. And people just go, no, are you willing to risk potential chaos that could come? This world was built and is maintained by America. If we step back, mm-hmm. we would be, we would be abdicating our responsibility to the entire freaking globe mm-hmm. and every person on it. I mean, you, can tell, you, can, you can write a book to yourself about how you should stay in the position, but in, in the position of power that you're in. Now, everybody reading that would say, yeah, it sounds good, except you would say that because you're in the position of power. I mean, it's, you know, it's, what are you, which one are you going to go with there? You know, people outside are going to go, and that sounds a bit convenient. Yeah, your, your, your narrative sounds plausible and stuff, but it's also very convenient because the end result is you get to stay in power. Now, you do, I, I might believe that you're, you want to stay in power for the good of humanity and that there's no, uh, no element at all of self-interest of you wanting to be in power because you've been consumed by it and you basically crave it now and you can't live without it. That, that, that is not a part of it. Well, that would be a bit of a gamble to take if, uh, you know, if you were to ask me to do that because human psychology argues, uh, would suggest that, that, that there definitely is a big part of, uh, self-interest in what you're doing, you know, despite your wonderful narrative. And of course, the big, the other problem is, is that, uh, they can make that reality in a certain sense. And there's some truth to their claims, their narrative that if we walk away, bad things would happen because, uh, or if America falls, bad things would happen because the world is so connected and the dollar is the world reserve currency and all these countries hold, uh, dollars uh, as, as as reserves for bank because the petrodollar and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, if America was to fall, then yeah, it probably would involve some serious economic uh, issues for a lot, many countries in the world. So in that sense, they can point to that and say, well, you see, there's some hard evidence for my narrative. So it's very hard to tease it out. You know, you can, to a certain extent, you can understand from the point of view of understanding how people get consumed with their own power, how uh, you can understand why these people are uh, are doing this. It's still depraved. They have no. I mean, what's missing is a bit of a bit of backbone, a bit of humility, and a genuine uh, interest in um, in having less war, for example, or making the world a better place. You know, in in, in some kind of generalized way to reduce the the amount of uh, unnecessary suffering. But you know, there's narratives all across the board for those kind of things. You know what I mean? So it's. Uh, and they don't have they don't have that that impetus. That's the bottom line. Is that of course there is a different way, you know, um, and it could be negotiated, and it would have to be negotiated with the emerging powers. But there's no trust, and a combination of no trust and no humility, and a, and an attachment to positions of power or the you know being the, the global hegemon means that it ain't gonna happen. They'll have to be forced on them. But if it's forced on them, chances are it's not going to be pretty for everybody. Well, speaking of things that aren't pretty, maybe we can uh, move on to a little update on what's going on in Venezuela. Um, latest news I read today was that there was a uh, like an attempted military rebellion. Um, I think it was in Valencia, Anyway, some, you know, some military garrison or something basically said that they're launching a 
you know, a full-scale rebellion and rallying the troops and, and public support. And apparently that was put down by the by the government. But um, we had the Constituent Assembly uh, vote that, that happened uh, last week. Mm. Neil, have you been following uh, what's been going on in Venezuela? Do you uh, have anything to say about that? Um, no, not, not since last week, no. Not since last week. No. Well, so the only, th- yeah, that, that's basically the, you know, the updates that I've seen. Of course, we, after the, the election, we had the, um, apparently the, the company that made the, uh, like the voting software or something or has, uh, you know, alleged massive vote fraud. And then of course the Venezuelan government says, no, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They don't even have access to the data. Um, but we, so we've had, you know, conflicting narratives about that, even within Venezuela. Um, of course the opposition saying that the, you know, 8 million people didn't vote. It was way less than that. Um, the government saying this was, a you know, an unprecedented, um, you know, voter turnout that, uh, it was even more than, um, than people who voted in, you know, when Chavez first came to power. And, uh, I, I think there have even been new sanctions. Were those new against uh, against uh, like Maduro and some mm-hmm. more Venezuelan politicians? And you know some not so veiled, some more not so veiled comments from American politicians about how this is a uh, you know unacceptable and yeah. basically we're going to regime regime change the hell out of you. And oh, there was was one thing at the the first act of this new assembly. Um, was to sack the chief prosecutor, I think chief prosecutor for the whole country, mm. who's a opposition of the opposition, apparently. Yeah. Um, and they had to do so with an underarm guard, which is going to be the story from here on out. They're going to have to use a big stick with everything. Mm. And once you're using a big stick with everything, well, then everything looks like it's being forced, right, on the people from above. But... Uh, in a delicate situation like this, well, it works both ways. You, you you have to use a big stick to do things legally, but it can easily be flipped in the court of public opinion to being shown to be shown that you're using a big stick to do things illegally. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I've noticed is that the mainstream media is uh, in Europe and the US is almost uniformly um, against Maduro and his government, which is uh, just piques my interest because especially, you know, Americans when you're, or North Americans more generally, when you're criticizing the left as being, you know, the root of all evil and the height of the left establishment and so on, well, how does that work there when the left establishment wants Maduro gone? Shouldn't lefties of the world unite? No. no. Apparently not. So you see very, very different once you leave the Western distortion field and left and right is very often flipped in, in other parts of the world. So here you have an actual left government that's under tremendous international pressure, uh, not just in terms of information, but in terms of probably a sanctions war combined with more immediate physical measures like an actual blockade of shipments. And and probably destabilization efforts inside the country. Yeah, they probably have. Ally Ukraine, I think. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be pretty. Um, <coughs> Trump is weighing in, of course, with... He's going with the flow. Um, I don't know. 
what to say about that. I mean, it's expected for an American president to hate on the Chavez regime. It has been since 1999. As far as the establishment is concerned, Venezuela is an upstart kid. And didn't these people ever learn about the Monroe Doctrine, which is that you're in our backyard and you're all just tenants here? Um, there's no, pretty much no hope for Venezuela resolving this peacefully, I don't think, um, absent actual international assistance. But like I said, Monroe Doctrine, what are Russia or China going to do? Send a fleet? That's to Venezuela. That hasn't happened since the Americans kicked the British and the Germans both out in like 1825 or something. Yeah, the problem is once you're on first, um, like as uh, probably groups um, inside the country, opposition groups are being uh, encouraged to keep going. You see this as a repeating pattern in various countries that uh, get targeted for some kind of destabilization or regime changes that you see uh, an initial group as there is in, as there is or can be uh, in any country uh, an opposition group that's you know against the sitting government um, well, I mean those those kind of groups um, they exist in every every country and they can you know now and again uh take to the streets and protest but all it takes is someone some external power uh, to kind of militarize them and to feed them lots of money through covert channels and weapons uh, and even even training and that kind of thing um, and th those kind of protests can go on indefinitely you know and they can be, be made more and more violent we saw it in Ukraine we saw it in Syria we saw it in Libya we had basically um small-scale revolutions, or not revolutions, but small-scale uprisings that would have naturally just petered out and gone nowhere, but they were given these le given legs, basically, by, um, by, by foreign powers. And they can be continued indefinitely to the point where, you know, they, they, the general plan is to increase the scale of those protests, uh, increase the violence, and then turn international attention on that kind of civil unrest, uh, turn international condemnation up a few notches and hopefully that kind of generalized pressure directly and indirectly uh, will lead to some 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 over, some type of overthrow or some time, type of removal of the government, you know. Um, and it happened over and over again, as, as we all know, um, uh, in various countries around the world, many of them with that, with that external help coming from the US and other Western countries. And the one notable exception, at least in recent years, was Syria. And the reason it didn't work in Syria, although it was progressing very well by, by 2015, uh, was because Russia dire intervened directly, militarily. So the only way to stop that from happening seems to be well, the, the evidence. The example we have so far is that uh, you have to have uh, a foreign power actually intervene as a kind of a peacekeeping force and essentially take control of the country, you know. Um, but of course, that would, can you imagine if Russia did, <laughs> did something like that in the current climate? My God, the whole internet would break down, you know, with the uh, screams of, I hate Putin and, you know, commies or commies, the commie international or something. Uh, yeah, so unfortunately, you just have to, I don't know, you have to either 
hope that uh, the city, the, the local government can can stick it out. Or if you figure it's better off to to not let something kind of spiral down into a civil war type situation, then you have to just go with the opposite one of uh, well, the odds are against you here, so Maduro should go and you know you should uh, let the let the opposition win basically and and let the chips fall where they may. You know, at least you might have a better you know. But that's only after it gets to a certain point, you know, or if it gets to the point of possible civil war and you know large numbers of death and suffer, deaths and suffering and stuff um but yeah. well the you know in addition to this kind of covert effort of destabilizing venezuela um directing its uh its oligarchs to do certain things to keep food from being transported uh right. adequately uh, there is now this kind of uh, overt effort, uh, it seems, on the part of the U.S. Um, to kind of manufacture the narrative, and you know, as much as you, uh, as much as they did with uh, Maidan, as you mentioned earlier, um, Mike Pence, uh, Trump's VP, recently called the opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez. And confirmed that uh, the administration would uh, would be taking drastic economic action against the Maduro-led government. Mm. Uh, Pence also praised Lopez uh, and said, "You know, and by the way, Lopez was behind the 2002 U.S.-backed coup attempt against Chavez." Right. Uh, so this, you know, this is uh, this is the U.S.'s guy in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Venezuelan U.S. collusion. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Pence said, that on CNN. <laughs> yeah. Remember, the U.S. has to do this in case chaos breaks out. You see, hmm. right? Everyone uh, understands that, right? Yes. Then a quarter-century-long war against Venezuela that has caused chaos and misery has to be done to prevent chaos and misery. And just a couple of really other uh, bad signs here. Uh, the director of the CIA, Mike Pompeo said that the U.S. is working towards a, quote, transition to Venezuelan governance in coordination with the governments of Colombia and Mexico, mm-hmm. and that he was hopeful that there can be a trans- transition in Venezuela, and the CIA is doing its best to understand the dynamic there. I've got a, I've got mm-hmm. a suggestion for the, for the CIA. Mm-hmm. They're going to love it. They should just uh, you know start up a new Contra program. And, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, why not? I think they have one going already. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> As members of the opposition aren't too different from the Contras, you know. And then maybe they can, you know, they can have some backroom deals with Iran to uh, <laughs> funnel some money, and then we can have yeah. a whole new Iran Contra scandal. Hey, let's just reprise it. Yeah, it worked so well last time. Yeah. Is Oliver North still alive? <laughs> he is. He's doing radio. Get it. Get him in on it. Maybe he could lead it. You can organize the arms shipments for uh, from Iran. Yeah, blast from the past. Iran can make, give a few, make a America few refugees. great again. I mean, mm. Reagan was the greatest president in U.S. history. So, I mean, why not just do a repeat, mm. a relaunch, a yeah. reboot, a reboot? <laughs> wow, it's such a load of nonsense. Everything that's going on. It's not nonsense, but it's just. It's like everything it's like everything that we've been we've we've been railing against 
in terms of particularly in terms of America and Western countries' influence in the world over the past, you know, since nine eleven, let's say, and and, and before, uh, it's all of that's just it's kind of like on steroids now, you know, in a certain sense, you know, it certainly has become. Mm-hmm. They've all taken steroids in Washington D.C. since nine eleven, basically. You know, that was the, like the super the supercharging of uh, of America it was the last hurrah, it was the last great foray, the last great charge of of America, of the American exceptionalists around the world to lock down American hegemony forever. And it's all going wrong. The last charge of the exceptionalist brigade. Exactly. Well, they have a name for it now. It's called uh, Operation America United. And, uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. The, the, uh, apparently the U.S. is going to lead military drills uh, with uh, three nations bordering Venezuela. And they're going to set up uh, temporary military bases. Um, so this is this is coming up in the next few months. And uh, so I think, you know, looks huh. like they're they're ready to just go in there and uh, impose some uh, some mm. law and order U.S. style. So it's um, Operation United Americas or America? Operation America United. Singular. You America. See, Monroe, so, it's Monroe Doctrine. So all Our of, backyard. So that whole continent is America then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not Latin America. No. Or South America. It's all America. It's all America. It's a place we get drugs so much, there's so much flavor from. There's so much America all over that place. Meanwhile, well, there the should be. 17-year war in Afghanistan continues. Um, I think six U.S. soldiers were killed there last week mm-hmm. in three separate attacks. Um, and Trump tweets about it as well. What do you say? He said, uh, we are... Um, well, he basically said that we're losing the war in Afghanistan. <laughs> but the Taliban have retaken... Towns and Swedes that were yeah, yeah. I think previously he's a, cleaned up. I think he's the only the first president since you know Afghanistan since in the seventeen years to actually come out and say we're losing that war. <laughs> we're actually we're going to lose it. I mean, every other president said you know there's problems and you know I want to you know want to sort out Afghanistan and maybe pull troops out and maybe not that kind of thing. What are we going to do? We got to pulling troops out just as soon as we're sure that they can stand on their own two feet. Mm. Seventeen years later. We're going to add Pulling some more troops. troops out just as long as we're sure. Yes, he's, he tweeted that the whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, he's, he's, um, I can't remember what else. I can't remember exactly what else he said about it, but um, he was saying something Trumpish, like apart from uh, we're losing the war and that he wanted to do something about it. You know, <laughs> who knows what? I mean, I don't know to what extent the people, the anti-Trump establishment um, in the U.S., are get wind of what he what he's all about, what his plans are, you know, in terms of the plans that he's been developing, talking about with whoever he can get to be an advisor uh, and stay long enough. But I don't know if they, they probably do get, you know, uh, an idea or even transcripts of his telephone calls probably. Uh, so they know pretty much what he's been planning, you know, and um, all he's thinking and they assess where he's going and stuff. And they probably don't like it, you know. We don't know. Obviously, Trump isn't going to come out at the very beginning and say, "Here's what I'm going to do," and all these things that are completely against that would would turn 
all of the America firsters against him immediately. Like, so he wants to keep it kind of covert, but how much can you keep your stuff covert if you're the president of, of America? How much can you keep covert from U.S. intel agencies? You know, from, from, in terms of what your, what your plans are? Probably not a lot. So, um, the extent that he actually talked about this and, and, and talked about his vision for America over the next four years, if they get wind of it, there's probably a lot of things that he actually hasn't said publicly, but they got an idea of, uh, in terms of where he wants to go, and they probably didn't like any of it. No. There was a statement this week. Um, I don't know who it was, but it, it got some traction in the media that the only way out for us, this is an American of some seniority or other, he said the only way out in Afghanistan is cooperation with other countries. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, that was... In my mind, that would be the direction Trump would ideally have taken it. Yeah. So that could have been a spokesman on his behalf, which, of course, is a no-no. Afghanistan is not to be solved. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a forward operating base for the U.S. to remain indefinitely in East, in Eurasia. It's a forward operating base, and it's a, uh, a treasure trove of... Um, minerals uh they say that there's got to be a uh, like a trillion dollars worth of uh minerals that are used for uh, technological uh purposes uh in mm-hmm. afghanistan that has now become a very so it, on top of it on top of it being this uh this very important geostrategic area it's now you know an incredibly rich area to be uh, exploited and uh and, and used. Mm. Uh, yeah, and that just coincidentally happens to be the case with all of America's biggest enemies. Like we put up an article on SOT uh, just this last week on the, you know, the, the top 10 countries in terms of natural re- resources. <clears throat> Excuse me. And except for the people already in the, or the, the nations already in the American empire, so the U.S., Canada, Australia, and Saudi Arabia, um, like the other top countries are Russia, China, Venezuela, Iran, um, Brazil, mm. and and one other. But then two that weren't on the list, but that are still you know up there in trillions of dollars worth of mineral resources are North Korea and Afghanistan. So they're not mm. in the top ten, but they're right below it. So what a uh, what a coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, what I didn't know until reading one of these recent articles is that Venezuela surpasses Saudi Arabia in terms of mm. oil reserves. It's no coincidence mm. that the U.S. is going after Venezuela in the way that it is. Mm. Uh, Chavez basically nationalized uh, all of his oil resources and kicked out a couple of the big oil companies uh, in the mm. early 2000s. Um, and guess what? <laughs> U.S. big business doesn't like that. Um, so... Uh, this is, uh, you know, forget, forget nationalizing anything and, and helping the people, um, uh, thrive off of the, mm-hmm. off of whatever natural resources a country has. Uh, mm-hmm. they, the U S wants to come in and plunder it and that's what they've been doing. Yeah. Although, you know, I don't know, I suppose it's a bit foolhardy. It was a bit foolhardy of, uh, of Chavez to, to do that, you know, um, yeah. 
I'm going to do the thing that, that every leader that's tried it in the past has been like deposed or assassinated for doing. <laughs> right. But it'll be different for me. Yeah. But also because it's not necessarily the best thing to do. Yeah. Nationalizing does not equal utopia. And that's the socialist mistake. Um, compare with Kazakhstan, tremendous wealth as well, resources. Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the West hasn't bothered it once because it made all these awesome deals that made it richer. And those stakes have since been bought back by private Kazakh companies that have de- developed in the quarter century in the meantime. Mm-hmm. So he very... the. The leader there, no one's ever complained about. It. He's been the president for 25 years, and you don't ever hear about the authoritarian, evil dictator of Kazakhstan, because he very cleverly flew under the radar mm-hmm. and built up his industry in the background. They then bought back the stakes and sold some of them to Russians and Chinese. And hey, presto, mm-hmm. it's an integrated part of the Eurasian project. And they totally missed. It flew under the radar, and they didn't try to regime change him anyway. So yeah, you got to be smart. Unfortunately, um, hard left kind of ideas. They, they learn yeah. the hard way that once you get into government, oh, actually, you need to adapt a bit. Hang on, the world doesn't actually work like that. Right, you got to operate in, right. in the way the world actually works. You know, in terms of like a, a, a the globalized uh, kind of infrastructure and who's on first and who's the who are the people who have. I mean. There's a very practical aspect to it as well, which is um, that there, there's certain technologies and stuff that uh, Western countries or other countries have that countries with the natural resources actually need uh, to extract uh, their those resources. So it's kind of a bit stupid to kind of just say, okay, everybody else screw off. We've got lots of oil here, but you don't really have the proper technologies to extract it and uh, and get it to the market, you know? So, I mean... You have to kind of, you know, swallow your pride in a certain sense. There's not a lot of room in that for in that in that area for uh, for ideology, you know, of uh, kind of Chavez's Bolivarian kind of uh, revolution and that kind of stuff, which is totally, you know, throw a throwback to the Cold War basically, and it's anti-American, you know, very strongly anti-American and stuff. But if you let that ideology interfere with uh, doing doing good business, then it's it's not really. Uh, it's not smart, you know? And I mean, the upshot is, for whatever reason, but the upshot of that was like, I mean, this year, you mentioned, Alan, that Venezuela has um, more resources, more oil than uh, Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the, I think for most of this year, at least, and maybe even going into, into last year as well, Venezuela has been buying oil from someone else. I'm not sure exactly where, but on the oil market, Venezuela has been buying oil for its needs. Because it lacks the infrastructure to uh, make use of its own supply. Uh, no, well, I think it had the infrastructure, but it's just terribly mismanaged to the point where um, it was cheaper mm-hmm. for them, and uh, it was because they kicked out other companies and they're having to retool the, you know, the, the, the oil extraction facilities themselves and that kind of stuff. It ended up being more expensive for them to produce a barrel of oil than it was to buy one. And it was influenced by, I mean, the whole thing in Venezuela has been influenced by the uh, by the decrease over the past number of years uh, in the dramatic decrease in, in, in the price of oil. That hit them pretty hard right around the time that just after Chavez, I think, uh, died. It came shortly after that that you had this drop from over $100 down 
down to less than 50, you know, so it's 50%. Um, it came at a very bad time. And of course, that we know that certainly the one that happened a couple of years ago, where the Saudis dumped a bunch of oil onto the market to reduce the price, that was done pretty much at the behest of America to try and hurt Russia, to try and hit Russia's uh, oil revenues, you know. Um, but it also hit Venezuela, you know. So the upshot of it is, yeah, that basically the country of one of the largest oil reserves in the world is buying it from someone else, you know. Well, move on to another topic. Yeah. Sure. Well, there's one I wanted to talk about. Maybe we'll keep it short because I just found it to be an interesting news tidbit. It's about the the incoming class at Harvard. Um, so we've got this one up in society's child. So apparently for the first time ever, um, this is like a landmark year for Harvard because for the first time ever, minorities, uh, minority students are going to be the majority of the incoming class at Harvard. So I just wanted to throw it there and maybe we Yay, can talk a little bit, a little bit about affirmative action and how great it is. Let's talk about diversity. Yeah. So, well, maybe just to put things in perspective. So, um, I believe it's like 51%, 51.4 or something like that are minorities. So, minorities will be, um, these are race-based minorities. So, um, anyone that isn't white. So, uh, blacks, Asians, uh, any kind of like mixed, uh, you know, racial type or um, whatever, Native American. So, they're, o- so they're overrepresented population-wise in the right. U.S. And if you look at the actual demographics of the American population, whites are approximately like 74, 75%. So three out of every four people are white. And one out of every four is, uh, you know, another race. A minority. Yeah. A minority. So, but in Harvard, it's uh, essentially close to a 50-50 split. So minorities are overrepresented in uh, the incoming, uh, you know, class. So this article has um, some kind of interviews of, with people, you know, administrators in Harvard and, uh, you know, people just offering their thoughts on it. And they say essentially um, that, well, we're, we're following all the laws. Um, so there are, there are laws that uh, – well, let me, uh, let me find the article because there are some great quotes in there. But um, if you think about it, so let's just get some perspective on it. So – Affirmative action, I mean, there are these laws in place and, you know, practices for, you know, hiring and um, accepting kids into universities. So basically they have like quotas because with a history of racial tensions and uh, and racism and, you know, lack of equal rights, the, the solution was, okay, well, we're going to legislate to make sure that, uh, you know, that corporations and, and schools and stuff will, will be fair. And that's that's kind of the, the the moral and kind of justification for it, an intellectual justification too, that we're going to be we're going to be fair, and so we're going to make sure that we you know we have this many Asians and this many Blacks so that they're not underrepresented, all presumably in the service of fairness. <clears throat> so right on the surface, you see, okay, well, well. So ideally, you'd suppose that there would be, you know, 75 out of 100 students would be white and something like, you know, 14 out of 100 would be black and then et cetera, et cetera. Ideally, but, why? Well, well, just for just for the reason of equality, because um, because if that's the, the percentage of people in the population, they should be they should have statistical, oh. you know, statistical equivalence, basically. Okay. 
Um, but do you have a problem with that, Neil? Are you against equality? Well, you said ideally, and that made me raise a red flag. Oh, I thought, yeah. is, he, is this an ideologue we're no. listening to? <laughs> no. <laughs> ideally from their perspective, with their justifications, you'd think. Um, but it seems to have, have gone you know, even overboard to the point where now whites are underrepresented. So you'd think even by their logic that that would be um, you know, a bad decision or a bad outcome, but not so. I mean, they're calling it like a landmark, um, you know... Well, yeah, a landmark, a great thing that this has happened. So apparently it's not that, uh, it's not really, f you, well, just looking at the numbers, you can't say it's for equality or for, um, you know, just statistical equality because uh, minorities are overrepresented. So mm -hmm. that seems to imply that, uh, you know, it's more important for equality, for, um, for minorities to, um, you know, get better treatment than the majority. And I guess it's fine that the, the majority doesn't get as equally represented. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. But it's also, maybe that's, I mean, that's just one example at Harvard. Maybe across the U.S. it's still fairly unbalanced. I'd say it, I'd say it is, no? Oh, yeah. I don't know the, um, I don't know the general statistics. Yeah. So this yeah. is just, this is just Harvard. But. But it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a worrying trend if they take that too far, obviously, because you could end up having, a, it's kind of called positive discrimination, right? Where you, mm -hmm. you preferentially accept uh, minority people into university and there's lots of problems with it. One of them being that, um, you know, you start kind of taking people with like less able people or less, less intelligent people or less mm -hmm. capable people in a particular subject, uh, entry into, into a course um, because they're a minority. And you give them preference over someone of, like, let's say in this case, someone who's a, a white American, who would be, who technically has better scores, but uh, they don't get in because they're not a minority. Right. You know, so it's not, it's not good for, for performance. Let's say, right? Uh, well, potentially and, not good for performance. And this is this is a problem with you know affirmative action kind of across the board, um, and it just comes from the fact that you are, um, I mean, race is a uh, like uh, an acceptance criteria. Like in this article, they actually say, um, let me find it here. So um, at U Massachusetts Amherst, a student's race and ethnicity are part of the admissions process. That's what um, the school's associate provost says. Mm. <clears throat> and just think about that. So <laughs> if you just take that, you know, that statement and just say it, so... Your race or ethnicity is a part of our admissions process. I mean, it sounds like yeah, you get points for it. <laughs> well, yeah, but what are, you know? What, you get, are, what if, other countries have have had like race based um, you know admissions processes and things like that? Well, it's been the racist countries essentially. Um, right. This is this inverse is, racism. This is inverse racism. Um, yeah. So if you're, if you're a minority with a C, that equals an A. Uh, you know, yeah. that you put you up with the same equivalency of an A. Say a white, guy, a white, a white American got an A. You're the same, basically that kind of thing. Right. But the th like the thing about the, all this is that like e even if the you can't tell what's going on just by looking at the statistics, because of course there there is um um what's the word like there is kind of ne a negative let's say selection on based on race in some cases like there is some discrimination that goes on. That's just I mean that's to be expected. Um, but you can't tell just by looking at the numbers, and it's the same thing with the wage gap. Just by looking at the statistics, they can seem to suggest something when, if you actually break down the statistics, um, you know, it's not actually what you think it is. 
So with with um, with when you're looking at race and um, you know educational institutions, for example, some races will be overrepresented, and this is actually the the case that came out because um, uh, the Trump administration just said something about it. I believe the the Department of Justice just came out saying that they're going to be looking at um, um, like a discriminate discrimination against Asians because Asians are overrepresented in um, like Ivy league universities. Mm-hmm. And so because there are a lot of smart Asians that apply and so they're, they're overrepresented. It's the same thing with uh, like Jewish people, for example, like uh, I was listening to a, a Jordan Peterson talk um, the other day where, well, an interview with him and someone asked him, well, what do you think about the Jews? And he says, Oh, well, you know, it's a funny thing about, about the Jews because, uh, most of my friends are Jews and it just kind of happened to work that way because, you know, I'm, a, I'm intellectual. There were, you know, there, there were no Jews, you know, really where, where he was from in, you know, Northern Alberta. But when he moved to Toronto, um, there's this kind of intellectual climate with a whole bunch of Jewish people. So he just kind of, those are the friends he made. And the point he made is that, you know, there are, there are studies showing that, um, you know, Ashkenazi Jews on the whole are like 15% higher in IQ than, you know, other, uh, you know, populations. Just, things just happen to work out that way sometimes when you look at race-based things. There, now, of course, there there will be um, various explanations for why that is the case, but it doesn't change the fact that it is the case. So that's the case with with Asians, for example. They're overrepresented. So Ivy League institutions are actually um, rejecting Asian stu- Asian applicants because they're Asian mm-hmm. uh, to keep their numbers down so that they can they can accept other minorities. I had a friend, uh, this was 30 years ago, we went to high school together, who applied to MIT. He's Vietnamese. And uh, very good grades, very smart guy. Basically, he was rejected. Mm-hmm. And they came out and said, we have an overrepresentation of Asian students here. So the poor guy, you know, I guess he, he didn't fall in the 98th percentile of, you know, top, uh, you know, uh, achievers. He was probably more closer to 95 or 96 or whatever it was. And I don't know, mm-hmm. but, um, that was the first time I had yeah. heard of anything like that happening yeah. because he was, you know, uh, under any other circumstances, he would have been accepted to MIT. Yeah. And this might've been very different. Apparently there, there are a whole bunch of lawsuits, um, going around right now for that very reason. Cause, uh, it's apparently it's a big problem that Asians are being rejected because they're Asian. Now, so when you look at the numbers, like let's say, so 51% of, you know, the new class at Harvard is minorities. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It could be that that 51, you know, that, that all these minority groups are, are just overrepresented, you know, just because of their academic abilities. But that's not the case. It's that they're being selected because of their race in order to fill racial-based quotas. Mm-hmm. When And that's kind, of a, that's kind of a recipe for failure for uh for academia in general, when you're, when you're, I mean, cause academia is an intellectual, you know, academic field. And when academics aren't the kind of, uh, entry based, you know, criteria for, for that, then, you know, you end up with, well, well, I told it, I told a friend the statistics and, and she said, Oh, well, that means that probably a, a majority of, of the graduating class won't be minorities. Um, which I thought was kind yeah. of funny, but, uh, right. But what it comes down to, it's this, it's a similar thing that you see. Um, well, it comes, it comes back to, 
one of the kind of problems that you see is in societies in general, and Lobachevsky talked about this, and he talked about a kind of negative selection. Um, mm. what, what did he call it? It was it wasn't he, it wasn't negative selection. It was a um, I can't remember the phrase he used for it, but it's basically when you put an incompetent person in a position um, that requires competence, um, and then the people who are actually competent get put in lower lower positions uh, of influence, and you know where they can't actually. Um, you know, make use of their actual talents and that creates resentment and, mm-hmm. and uh, it's basically a revolution. It creates a revolutionary environment because you, you have a whole bunch of talented people who are like actively prohibited from doing anything worthwhile for society. And when they see that the, pe- the people in the positions that they would naturally have, those people are parasites, essentially, they're not intelligent. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they're doing. Um, they're just kind of, uh, you know, living yeah, off. Well, that kind of, right, well, that kind of affirmative action engenders that in people where they're given yeah. something for nothing, effectively. They're not, exactly. they're not actually, they haven't achieved, achieved their position through through their own hard work, regardless of the adversity that they that they they face. In, in fact, sometimes because of the adversity they face that they actually achieve uh, great things because adversity is a, is a great kind of uh, motivator and, and teacher in a lot of, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways. So, um it's just it's just such a such a bad idea yeah i mean it has so many p- very foreseeable negative outcomes um and the problem here is where where the state intervenes and starts to try and kind of micromanage society you know so social kind of forces or society as a whole and you know through legislation or through influence in universities and education and stuff they start to kind of try and uh, you know structure it themselves like actually organize it Instead of doing the far better thing that you know always works out far better is let society self-organize, you know. Mm-hmm. But of yeah. course, they've been they've been encouraged to not to, to step in, intervene in, in in that self-organization because of the hysterical, um, over exaggerated um, claims of um, of of discrimination and of uh, you know uh, oppression or. Discrimination against minorities and stuff like that—that uh, that, that isn't isn't the case. And even if it is, in some exp- in some uh, respects, that's natural, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, my, my looking at this whole this whole area of social justice, basically, uh, the thing I keep coming back to is that the people who advocated or who are advocates for or activists for social justice are generally speaking. They seem to be complete. Well, basically, based on 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 what they advocate, it suggests strongly that they're completely unaware of the reality, or they completely misunderstand or do not understand the reality of of human beings and human nature and human psychology and how it works. And that also would very often include these people being completely unaware of their own psychology and their own motivations, most of which are kind of like below conscious awareness you know so these people are basically flying blind they're like blind people kind of like uh, trying to organize organize society you know uh, all on really uh, kind of faulty premises across the board because they just do not understand what they're dealing with and of course regardless of the area that, that happens it's going to very you know, almost inevitably will will lead to some kind of disaster you know mm-hmm. well and um like I, I saw a couple graphs and charts recently that kind of helped put things in perspective. Well, one was just kind of tracing um, 
like racial discrimination over the past like 150 years. And it's like a dramatic like decrease. It's pretty much, you know, gone, you know, all, if you well, if you look at the general trend, it looks like it's approaching zero essentially. Um, but if you listen to social justice warriors, you think it's the biggest problem facing the world right now, or one of the big problems. Yeah, it's worse than um, ever. Worse than ever, right? And th- but then there was a recent poll done uh, uh, among United States, you know, residents in the United States, and uh, it was a poll done to minority groups and asking about discrimination. And like something like seventy-two percent of all minority groups said they had never experienced discrimination in their life. <laughs> like, mm. They had no no perception of any kind of discrimination against them. Seventy-two percent, um, you know, and that those I'm I'm guessing. I'm, and I'm, I think I'm probably right that those numbers are, you know, drastically better than they would have been like a hundred years ago. Um, but just, I mean, just think about that. So what, three out of four pe- minority people, um, you know, actually don't, haven't perceived any kind of discrimination against them. And then compare that to like the, the whole social justice kind of worldview, uh, like something doesn't quite match up there. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's um, I don't know. It just doesn't. It just doesn't look good. It's, it's like the 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 crazy people have taken over the the asylum, basically, you know, uh, and are directing it. And um, it's increasingly, it's just getting to the point where you just feel like kind of uh, you know, almost like washing your hands of the whole thing, you know. Um, because there's so little possibility for any sense or rational discourse to be injected into the dominant the dominant discourse, which is just one of uh, my truth versus your truth. Uh, there's no dialogue there, you know. It's uh, everybody's retreated into their trenches and are just waiting for the shooting to begin, you know. Um, and there's a big kind of middle ground there. Pretty much everybody, or very few people, seem to uh, to be interested in occupying. You know, mm. and instead of occupy Wall Street, now should we occupy the middle ground? You know, because uh, um, there's nobody there. It's a big space there, and nobody's in it. Everybody, for some reason, is being well, for probably fairly understandable reasons, based on again on human psychology, is, is being being encouraged to take a side. And when that happens, it's usually bad news. You know, no matter what era of history you've lived in when when the call goes out to take sides or you're a traitor basically um the only sensible answer is uh, i abstain you know yeah because you know how it goes but people like it seems like people are blind to even the existence of that middle ground that's the effect of polarization it's like they can only see the two options or they they can only see basically their option and uh, and you know the 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 opposite uh, option is automatically the devil and there's there's no middle ground like they can't even perceive it it's mm-hmm. it's invisible to them so you can see that with with um you know with, with this example with affirmative action where either you are um, for affirmative action and or you're a racist. When, right. <laughs> when when really you can't you can't see that the that well a that there is kind of like a, a an undercurrent of of racism inherent in in affirmative action, but also mm. that no it, it w- this is what n- not being not racist would be is when you don't 
like um, reject a per, you know an applicant based on their race when you don't consider their race when you are um, um, you know considering them for uh, for their position you look at their you know, you look at their marks or whatever you just mm-hmm. I mean of course the the um, um, kind of the extreme kind of left groups will say oh well there's implicit bias and all that thing and all that stuff well um, that's debatable but um, like I, like I said earlier, there is some discrimination that goes on for sure. I mean, it, it always happens um, and it happens everywhere. So, but there needs to be smart ways of counteracting it. And this is just not a smart way of doing it. And mm. like, it, it, so you just, it's like choosing between stupid and stupid. Um, it's, it's not really an option or it's not really a, it's, it's a forced choice. It's not a good choice. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of think about it. Yeah. We each think about a third option. Yeah. yeah. And there usually is one, you know. Um, but then most people don't. Uh, so you just have to uh, withdraw from the fray in a certain sense because you know, you're not going to achieve anything, you know. Um, yeah. Well. Yeah. We just have to watch it all go down. Watch it all go down, you know. That's yeah. The most we can do, you know, and learn something in the process. And I think the lessons we learned here are not necessarily about which side is right or wrong necessarily, but rather, um, you know, to have a good look at the forces that create that dynamic in society as a kind of organic whole, you know. And that's the really interesting thing, you know, um, to see, because this has happened before, probably countless times in human history, you know, and uh, we're getting an opportunity to, to watch it happen in a, in a very particular age. Um that probably hasn't happened too often, you know, kind of technological age and stuff and the internet and all that business, you know, instant communication. So there's a, it's really a ripe uh, 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 opportunity to, um, to to look at it from that perspective. And I mean, the, the, the key is really to try and not get identified. You can hold your own, your own um, values and ideals they're yours. The bottom line is that they're yours. You've decided on them, and if you don't, if you don't see them reflected in society, if it's all, it's kind of like that uh, polarity between two sides that neither of which you agree with or anybody sensibly could agree with. Then you know, just uh, keep your own counsel, basically. And uh, if you find anybody that kind of is doing the same thing, then you can you can kind of uh, hang out with them, but. The only thing to do is just like, I guess, hey, watch it, watch it go down, or watch it go wherever the hell it's going. Um, but fighting and for it, you know, I mean, there's some to some extent it's possible for some people to fight for it, and you know, we we can support them and applaud them. Um, but there are very few people like that, you know, uh, who actually have the audience and have the voice where they can have an influence on large numbers of people. Um, i.e., large numbers of people who are because there probably is quite a lot of large number of people that. Um, who are, who are a bit lost, you know, who haven't taken sides yet, you know. Mm. And the other people who are kind of uh, up, uh, you know, still in play in a certain sense. Um, and there are people out there who are, I mean, uh, Jordan Peterson is one who's uh, who's trying to talk sense to people, you know. Certainly he's not an advocate, despite what people, some people might think, he's not an advocate of like right-wing ideologies or anything like that, you know. Um, he's a pretty smart guy and he knows... Uh, his his main shtick is basically, um, you know, society does this repeatedly throughout history, over and over again, falls into 
one ideology or another, and, and whichever one it is, it doesn't matter, left, right, whatever you want to call it, one of them at certain points in history is the one that leads the world into kind of chaos. And whichever one that is in the time that you find yourself, that's the one you don't go with at the very least. But at the same time, you don't, you don't uh, fly to the opposite extreme just to combat it, you know? You argue for sanity, basically, and for everybody to draw back, draw back from the brink, and and you give people some tools to be able to do that, and you point out how they could do it, and how they can see the situation for what it is, and to even to look to their own self-interest and the interest of society of which they are a part, to to not and not take a side that will ultimately end in just infighting and a kind of some kind of a civil conflict, because that's not good for anybody, you know. Um, and he's one person that I think is ultimately arguing for that, although he may not do it explicitly, but by the stuff that he, he talks about. And he has a big reach, you know, he can kind of, mm-hmm. based on his popularity, he, he has an influence there. And, but there are very few people like him. Uh, everybody else is, is, is taking one side or another, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easy to be pulled into the one that you, because of your character, your nature, your past or your upbringing, whatever, uh, the one that you gravitate to, it's very easy to be pulled into that, but you should always stop, you know, and realize that there are forces here uh, at work in society that seem to cycle around, and it usually ends badly, and you don't want to be caught in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Well, do we want to give a, a quick weather report, or do we want to end the show? Is there anything important? Define quick. <laughs> Go with um, it. <laughs> oh, there's, there's, yeah. Yeah, small piece of news. The, the sun's rotation has slowed down. Nothing to see here. Um, carry on. Is this like a, a new dramatic slowdown, or is it has it been gradual? What's the story it's, there? It, well, in in the life cycles of you know the scale of celestial bodies, it's like instant. Hmm. So what they found was that twenty three years ago, it um, changed markedly. From a study um, analyzing 31 years worth of data from six ground-based telescopes that provide constant monitoring of the sun's oscillations, they found that 23 years ago, the structure of the sun's surface changed. Their data also indicates the rotation rate of the sun has changed. And here's a quote from the lead astronomer, British woman Yvonne Ellsworth. This is not how it used to be. Rotation rate has slowed a bit at latitudes around 60 degrees. We're not quite sure what the consequences of this will be, but it's clear that we are in unusual times. Hmm. When did they? When was that noted that it slowed? Did the, they have a specific time? 1994. Yeah, 23 years ago. Only finding out about it now. Pretty much. <laughs> it's a bit. It's a bit late, thank you. Uh, Oops, can we go back to 1994 and... Reverse, no, it's already underway, I'm sorry. Cosmic rays, massive in, uh, fluxing increase in cosmic rays reaching the Earth. This is to do with the sun, of course, because the sun would normally sweep most of it away. It's been increasing in increments for years now, but um, spaceweather.com, which is affiliated with NASA somehow or another, that website, they have monitoring sites. They traditionally had a site in California, and now they have one in... New England as well, on the other side of the U.S. Um, they have 
noted a 13% increase in stratospheric radiation over California between March 2015 and May 2017. In the same time period of those last two years, stratospheric radiation has increased over New England by 19%, mm. which is interesting because it, it suggests there's differentiation. But the, the main interesting thing here is a serious increase. Cosmic rays, we don't understand them well yet. There probably are experts out there who understand them very well. But I've heard just about every biological slash geological slash climatological phenomenon may be regulated by cosmic rays. So, yeah, it's basically like the control levers of it all down here have a lot to do with these things bathing our planet in God knows what, from supernovas, from other systems, from our own systems, and so on. But this kind of increase in, I mean, that's like, that is enormous. Yeah, so if anybody's feeling a bit squirrely uh, these days, or, um, you know, has been, or is going, If you think going, the world's falling apart. Going forward, <laughs> or you just feel a bit out of sorts in whatever way, you know, it's probably the cosmic rays. So... Just you know, they're beaming us. You can't, and these are the kind of things that penetrate through the ground and through solid matter and stuff. So you know, no point in hiding in hiding in caves or anything. It does make a difference where you are. Get you there. Recently, they've started to wonder about the effects of long term of of flying if you fly too much, because when you're up there, you're closer to it, and you are exposed to more. That's why people are going bonkers on planes, having fights and stuff. Possibly, it's a cosmic race. That would be my defense. In court, Your Honor, it was the cosmic rays made me do it. <laughs> I think it'd be solid enough, no? Um, yeah, it's been Europe's been pretty hot. This uh, oh, excuse me, one last piece of space weather. Mm-hmm. May. There was a major storm on the way on Neptune. Neptune is a furthest planet, official planet in this system. Things aren't supposed to happen there. At least, nothing unusual should happen there. Because we say so. Well, because our entire view. of the foundation of astronomy is the opposite to the climate change, quote-unquote, science, where in climate change, you get your, your dollars, your research dollars, by hyping up that it's all changing and it's all going to hell. In astronomy, you get paid for reminding everyone that everything is as it's meant to be, mm. and the only thing left for us to solve is when exactly the solar system began. Mm. We hear that all the time, right? Mm. So when a study like this one says that there's a storm raging on Neptune, which is about the size of Earth, at a latitude that they previously thought to be physically, astronomically impossible. It's got them going, okay, um, what are we doing wrong here? Um, There's a quote from... You just take a book out. The lead astronomer is saying that this storm, which is more or less at the equator of Neptune shows that there are, there are extremely drastic changes taking place in the dynamics of Neptune's atmosphere. And, and this, here you see, here's, here's this follow-up. This is the clause he adds, which demonstrates my point, that it's his job to bring us back to why it's all normal, as opposed to the people who are trying to freak everyone out that by 2100 we're all going to be cooked by global warming. He says perhaps this is a seasonal weather event that may happen every few decades or so. Mm. In other words, he pulled it out of his backside because he doesn't know. It's it's drastic, it's unusual, and it's happening right now. But we have to have an answer for it. Of course. Science is all-knowing. Um, yeah, well, 
it's kind of a bit, uh, what would you call it? Anthropocentric. Yeah. A, a, a bit of an anthropocentric outlook, as in... Uh, All is right. Well, basically nothing interesting happens except what's close to us, you know? Mm. All the interesting stuff and important stuff happens on Earth. Then as you go out into the solar system, it just gets more and more boring. Imagine out past Neptune, it's just like nothing's happening out right there. It's Jesus, <laughs> like... I don't know, like going to a bad mass on some day or something, you know, it's terrible, it's worse than that. Um, uh, so, yeah. Heat, heat wave Lucifer, was that what you were going to talk about? Yeah, I was going to talk about heat wave in Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, not Eastern Europe, kind of into Western Europe as well to some extent, but mostly kind of um, from Eastern France over into Italy and over into the Balkans, uh, Serbia, Hungary, uh, that kind of region basically having super hot temperatures loads of records being broken like up to 43 degrees and stuff um and one of the effects is that and that's not just because of this particular heat wave but generally the kind of up and down heat waves have been happening that are really a symptom of something else going on probably inside the earth but the upshot is that the temperature of the mediterranean and the adriatic and stuff is um is, is higher considerably higher than it usually is and that the water itself, yeah, the seas. The yeah. temperature of the water, yeah, of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, is higher. And that usually means, um, usually uh, predict, is a good predictor for seriously wild and stormy, uh, torna- tornado-y kind of uh, um, fall, you know, uh, fall period or uh, autumn uh, going on in September. So that's something for people um, living uh well, anywhere near the Mediterranean, but even then, the weather's crazy all over the place. So, yeah, we can probably expect a pretty, pretty dramatic weather from now on. And it was kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see that. Like we're looking at a heat map and stuff of, of the weather, you know, on the, over several days and the pulsing. It's just bizarre. It's almost like the Earth is kind of like getting a bit hot and bothered or hot, hot under the collar, basically. You know, you see this, thr- like this, this pulsing of. Um, of hot and cold, you know, and it's like super hot, like around that kind of middle section. And it's almost like the kind of heat that you usually see around uh, mid-latitudes, you know, where it's usually quite hot, like maybe say slightly north of mid-latitudes, like um, down into Africa and around um, places where it's basically hot all year round, uh, as it seems to have kind of moved slightly north, you know, uh, up into kind of southern Europe. Area, you know, which is uh, a bit bizarre. That's Eastern Europe, but elsewhere, t- temperatures are plummeting. Um, last week, there was a record-breaking cold spell across U.S. central plains. So, for example, St. Cloud, Minnesota, set a new record cold daytime high on August 3rd of 57 degrees. Um, the average temperature, so that's night and day, only was 56 degrees which is the joint record coldest average set in 1915. Um, Denmark officially hasn't had a summer. They have their own standard, which is you must at least have one day where it's 25 degrees Celsius in July. They didn't get one this year. So that's only the fourth time since records began in 1874 that Denmark had no summer. Um in other places where you would expect it to be cold, but not this cold, Greenland set the record for the coldest July temperature ever reported in the Northern Hemisphere at minus 33 Celsius recorded July 4th. 
Greenland has also gained a near record amount of ice this year. And that ice is melting slowly, which it would normally do in the summer months. Um, in the southern hemisphere, record-breaking cold weather hit Australia southeast early July. And just this week, they've had the same region experience record-breaking snowfall. Mm-hmm. Back to the north, Ottawa had the wettest July on record. Um, by a mile, I think. The average rainfall for July is 89 millimeters. They had over 250 millimeters. So the wettest July ever. It was also one of the coldest, coolest in recent memory. Where? That's in addition to May being a record-setting, record-setting rainfall Where? for Ottawa. Ottawa, Canada. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, very, it's bizarre the way it's very localized, you know. Uh, these climate or strange weather, climate extremes and are unseasonal uh, weather. Uh, it's, it's very, very localized, you know. I mean, while uh, you know, while while most of Southern Europe and Eastern Europe have been baking, just slightly north of that in Denmark, they don't get really a summer at all, you know, which is like strange. You know? Speaking of which, in the western half of Canada and northern western northwestern U.S. states, they're having record-breaking wildfires. Mm-hmm. The worst seen in Montana since at least 1910. Um, there have been 200 fires burning in British Columbia, Canada since July. Uh, some 7,000 people have had to evacuate their homes. At least two airport hangars and remote airports have been torched. The three biggest fires are enormous. They burned up to 20 square kilometers, forcing thousands of people to leave their homes. Um, that's the heat. And that, that's 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 Montana and British Columbia, but it's elsewhere in, in, in the western half of North America as well. Um, and then here's even more localized. Istanbul got slammed with really mm. fist-sized hail last week. Mm-hmm. Um, in just 20 minutes, they had severe flash flooding, uh, streets full of ice, Istanbul, Turkey, in late July. Um, 7,000 workers had to be deployed to help just clear up the streets a bit. I mean, the work isn't finished yet. Destroyed roofs, sparked fires all over the city. In one case, the winds were so strong, a large crane landed and smashed oil barrels at the port, causing a massive explosion. And that came nine days after Istanbul had already been pounded by another downburst, Mm -hmm. which flooded the metro system. It reminds me also of Moscow. Moscow has now had, I think, three storms of the century in the last two months. Extreme downbursts, which caused flash flooding. One of them, the one in May, I think, was probably the worst. The one that killed 16 people, crushed by so many falling trees. Um, but it's that expression. It's the storm of the century that you keep seeing repeated over and over. Right now, southern India, in fact, all of India is, is going through severe monsoon rains. Um, 700 people have been killed in the last few weeks all over the country. But in the very southern state of Gujarat, at least 213 people have been killed there just since July 21st. And the chief there says, this is the worst flood of the century. Mm. But that's exactly what he said just two years ago when 250 people were killed in Gujarat in southern India. These people don't realize we're just at the, we're not very far into the century, so they should maybe like. I mean, if you were doing it in 1998 or the late 90s, you could say maybe, uh, you know, you have a good chance of it being the worst of the century. But well, we, we, at the we, beginning of the century, it's not a good. I don't idea. know about a politician, but when it's, the term is being used by researchers, 
they mean in the last hundred years, averaging a hundred year period, not just since oh. the twenty first century began. Well, then they should say in the last hundred years, not the storm of the century. You should write them and tell them that. <laughs> Uh, some 50 people have been killed by lightning in India in just the last six days. That's extraordinary. I don't know. I don't know about background rates, how normal that is, but it sounds freakish. Um, there's a typhoon raging in the northern Pacific right now. It's on course to be recovered for the longest duration typhoon. Super Typhoon Noru is just off the southern coast of Japan, I think. Um Japan can probably handle handle these things very well. I mentioned Ottawa. Let's see, there's one last item. Nope, that's all I got. So it's cold, it's hot, it's wet, it's windy, it's chaotic, and yet it can also be idyllic. I mean, it's it's like Joe said, it's extremely localized in places. Um, global warming cosmic rays global nuttiness it's got to be the sun's got to be key to this the sun's out to get us if the sun does anything unusual I mean in addition to the sun slowing down its rotation whatever could be causing that we're, we're going to solar minimum not for another two years, and it's already a record. I mean, record. It's it's not been since the late 18th century since there's been this little sunspots. It is the sun. I mean, the sun is oppressing us. We're all being oppressed by the helio archy. <laughs> yeah. How do we remove him from? Uh, huh? uh, is it a him well, even? Well, I, yes, must be. He. And um, I don't know. We should uh, color revolution. We should protest at, at the very least, no? To shake our fists at it. That's basically what everyone on Earth is doing with their wars and the chaos. Hmm. They're shaking the fists at the sun. They just don't realize it yet. Yeah, well, you know, maybe maybe it'll succumb to that kind of pressure. Maybe if CNN got on the case, then they would feel the pressure, you know? Uh, we could issue sanctions. I reckon we Trump's colluding Trump, Trump's colluding with the sun. We could build a, a wall between the Earth and the sun. By yeah. by blocking out its malevolent rays, um, thereby instant hang on uh, ushering that's, in a new ice age. That's actually seriously been proposed. I have, a, I have, a, I have. A, They're serious. They, they want to capture an asteroid, lasso it, and spin it around the moon so that its its debris will block some of the sunlight hitting the <laughs> Earth, so we don't all toast by global warming by twenty one hundred. They've mm-hmm. actually seriously proposed that. Yeah, right. Like as Red Fox said, Russia hacked the sun. And uh, they're trying to destroy us all by the sun. But there's a solution to that. Since we all live in a flat earth, if everybody on the planet runs over to the edge, then it would flip over and we'll be on the underside. We'll be away from the sun's rays. <laughs> anyway, on that, uh, on that note, I think we'll uh, call it a night. Yeah. So, thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks, Joe, Neil, and Ilan, for your excellent insights today. And tune in next week. We're going to have a special guest next week. I'll announce it today because it's definitely going to happen, barring any unforeseen catastrophes. We're going to be interviewing uh, Michael Springman again. We had him on the show in uh, late 2016. Um, he's the author of his well, his first book. It was Visas for Al Qaeda. He's the 
ex-U.S. Um, diplomat that was stationed at the Jeddah station in the in the 80s in Saudi Arabia and kind of witnessed the whole um, kind of Mujahideen thing going on over there where um, essentially terrorists were given visas to come to the States for training to go to Afghanistan. So he's got a new book that just came out a month or so ago. Um, what's the name of it, Ilan? Is it? Uh, Goodbye Europe. Hello, chaos. Yeah, so it's all about the, the immigration migrant crisis. So he's going to be on the show to talk about the book, and we're going to get into all those details. So tune in next week because it should be pretty interesting. So thanks again, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Have a good evening. Bye-bye.